This is what you're fighting for. I mean, every day you're out there. What they're doing is blowing people off. If you continue to look the other way and shut up, then the oppressors, the authoritarians get total control and total power. Because this is just like in Arizona. This is just like in Georgia. It's another element that backs them into a quarter and shows their lies and misrepresentations. This is why this audience is going to have to get engaged. As we've told you, this is the fight. All this nonsense, all this spin, they can't handle the truth. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. One in 70, one in 74. Uh, that changed. Uh, they, they became a pro-life. I think my friend Russell Moore in 2003 uh, put something on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention that, that changed it. So it doesn't go back, I don't believe, to the Bible, uh, to Jesus's teaching, though I certainly understand reading the New Testament of the Bible, why people would be pro-life. I only bring that up to say I've always been concerned about uh, people coming forward like Donald Trump. And I have seen it throughout my entire adult life. The worst human beings on the face of the earth, people who are not conservative, all they have to do is wave the bloody banner of abortion and people fall in line immediately. Church has fallen. Oh, he's a godly man. Oh, he's a man of Jesus. Oh, he's Jesus. And Trump played them like a fiddle. Here's a guy who was pro-choice, like all the way. But when he decided to run, suddenly he's like, wait a second. The more pro-life I sound, the more evangelicals will just immediately throw in with me. I'm, I'm wondering, you're talking about how things are changing now. I'm wondering, though. Are we going to see the same thing happening five years from now, 10 years from now? Or will evangelicals be a bit wiser in following these false idols? Well, one, I hope so. I don't know. But I, here's some reason for hope on that point. For a long time, the pro-life movement was focused, and for good reasons, on the nine Supreme Court justices. Because of the Roe decision, which I profoundly disagreed with, the state of American law was that it was very limited in its ability to protect unborn life. With the Dobbs decision, now American law can protect unborn life. But then the second part of the challenge now kicks in, which is there's no way to a pro-life culture in the United States without persuading millions and millions and millions of Americans to change their minds about this issue. And one thing from a pro-life perspective for me that was so discouraging was that of the 27% of Americans, the second highest priority behind inflation, was of the 27% of Americans who went to the polls with abortion front of mind, about 76%, more than three-fourths of those folks voted against the pro-life position. And so that meant, and what that told me is that there are millions and millions of hearts and minds that had to be changed and have to be changed. And there's no way to do that through animosity and pugilism and vengeance and all of the ways that Trumpism interacted with the American body politic. So that's why I wrote what I wrote. And I called people back to John Paul II's book. And John Paul II's book in 1995 about a pro-life theology talks about this, he uses this phrase, the incomparable worth of the human person. The pro-life movement has to project that it understands the incomparable worth of the human person from, from conception until natural death and a movement centered around animosity and vengeance and pugilism doesn't do that. And so that course has to change. David from Okay. Um, it is Tuesday, 22 November, the year of our Lord, 2022. You're in war and battleground. I want to bring in Terry Schelling. Terry, there's a lot of confusion out there. And, of course, the pro-life movement's taken a lot of uh, hits. I think maybe not that well-informed hits from a lot of different quarters, particularly the, remember, the the part of the, the, the secular part of the Republican establishment that are not with us on any cultural issues. All they want is tax cuts and deregulation, increase their wealth, Right. So tell us, tell, describe what we just heard there, and I want your analysis first before I get your analysis of the um, of what just happened on eight November, and is the uh, pro life movement to blame for it, sir? Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Uh, well, look, what we just saw was your typical David French uh, 
response to everything in politics because he fundamentally misunderstands politics. First of all, he starts off by saying that uh, Donald Trump tricked us, right? Uh, he tricked us all the way uh, from, you know, he was pro-choice and then he tricked us. Well, he tricked us into actually overturning Roe within his first term, right? This has been a goal for the pro-life movement since uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973. He's been a great pro-life president and we'd be blessed to have him again. But when he goes into about the whole thing about winning over the hearts and minds of the American people, what we saw this past election was what happens when the Republican Party doesn't fight back, when they allow their Democrat opponents to brand them. That 75% to 25% that he's talking about where we lost the issue, that's how the American people vote when they think the choice is between all abortions or no abortions. What we need to talk about is the reasonable and popular restrictions that the Republican Party supports, which is a 15-week abortion ban at the point in which the baby can feel pain. That has 60% support about the, from the American people. If we had made the issue of abortion around 15 weeks or not, we would have kicked the snot out of Democrats. So no, the pro-life movement isn't going anywhere. It's a winning issue. It's part of the Republican coalition and they better figure it out before 2024 because the left certainly isn't going to back away from this. When you say they should figure it out, I mean, tell me what happened between you had the huge win. And I think the audience that are not part of the pro-life movement need to need to hear this. You had the huge win on, uh, on Roe v. Wade. Right. And then they went absolutely crazy. And um, and then you had all their advertising. But in the interim, you had Kansas and, and that got a little confused. And once you lost Kansas, they got jacked up. They were everywhere. This is their leading. And of course, their outreach on TikTok and, and all these other platforms to uh, the youth vote. Where how, how did the pro-life movement not because you had a lot of very pro-life candidates, including the one we're fighting out today in Arizona, Katie Hobbs, it took the most radical position of all multiple times. And her only campaign stops, people used to mock her, her only campaign stops were Planned Parenthood, right? So how do you, how do you, and this thing's in a dead heat right now. And of course, with all the malfeasance in Maricopa County, I don't see how you're certified. I actually think Carrie Lake is going to end up being governor here. But talk to me about the pro-life movement. How, how, I'm not saying you guys dropped the ball, but clearly between the historic decision you guys fought for for 40 years and November 8th was what, uh, four months. And, and certainly the landscape, you know, the, the, your, uh, your opposite forces kind of took the bit and it looks like they, they were, if they didn't do it in reality, they've got the perception that they were able to, to stop some of the red wave. Well, the reality is, Steve, where we fell short is we fell short in convincing GOP leadership that this was a political winner. Uh, where we fell short is getting the GOP leadership to focus on anything besides inflation and crime. They really thought that they could get away without saying the A word. Uh, we, we know that that wasn't true. We know that that was a short-sighted thing. The only reason that you would ignore an issue in politics is if you think it's going to go away or if you think your response is going to hurt you. But what we saw is over almost half a billion dollars spent in negative campaign ads against Republicans on attacking them for wanting to restrict all abortions and to put women in jail. These ads from Beto and all these other Democrats were literally accusing Republicans of wanting women to die over not being able to get an abortion. That's what happens when you don't have a counterpunch. What we need to do in the future, Steve, is we need to get our candidates to counterpunch. It's not enough just to, just to talk about the issue and to be pro-life like David French is suggesting, we have to counterpunch. When the Democrats accuse you of wanting to ban all abortions without exceptions, you have to hit them right back in the teeth and make sure that people know. Pull a Donald Trump. You have to say that these guys want to be able to pull a baby out of the womb at nine months. They're okay with that and killing it. It's not okay with us, but it's okay with them. That's the world we live in. We support a 15-week ban that's totally reasonable and popular and supported by the American people. That's what we need to get back to. We need to counterpunch and go on offense. There's no reason to ignore the A-word. It is a beneficial issue for us if only we go on offense and show how extreme the Democratic Party is. You know, to get to the, the, the candidates are just are not that they're not leaders and not that they're not fighting this. They obviously are. But the, can, the candidates also rely upon their consultants, their pollsters and their money raisers, whether that's people going after big donors or for, for small donations. 
how do you get you're, you're losing the war? And I think you would admit this. You're losing the war with those three groups because those are the groups are really uh, uh, shifting a candidates to, to don't fight this back away from this soft pedal this. Am I not correct in that? No, you're correct. We we need to start. We need to we need to release more reports. And I'll tell you that my organization, APP, is getting ready to prepare an autopsy of this 22 election. See, we've been writing about this for a long time. We've been preparing all of the polling, the public research on these issues. We've been showing the Republican Party since 20. Our first autopsy was on the 2012 election because Republicans at the RNC released an autopsy that said that you know, social issues like abortion distracted from the GOP's winning economic message. Steve, our autopsy argued the exact opposite, that social issues like protecting the unborn at 20 weeks, 15 weeks, was way more popular uh, than any corporate tax cuts for millionaires or any regulatory cuts, because uh, those only speak to a small proportion of the electorate. We're going to produce another report. We're going to get it and punch even harder. Steve, the reality is, is that this issue isn't going aware, anywhere. I wish that we could, you know, actually, I don't wish, but these guys wish that they could just make the issue go away and disappear and have Democrats, you know, never talk about it again. It's not going to happen. And there's not, you're not going to eliminate 80% of the Republican Party is pro-life. What are you going to do with them? Why is it that the Democratic Party won't even abandon the transgender movement, which is only what? 1% of their coalition, 3% of their coalition, maybe. the Demo We need to treat the pro-lifers with the respect that they deserve because they're 80% of our party. You get rid of that issue and you're going to have a lot of people not showing up to vote for you at the polls. It's do or die. And so we're going to be coming out with a report showing how popular these issues are and contrasting how the Republican candidates that dug in on the abortion issue, like Ron DeSantis, like Mike DeWine, like like so many, like, like um, Greg Abbott in Texas, those candidates all did really well. It was the candidates like Dr. Oz and everyone else that distanced themselves and tried to ignore the issue that suffered. And so we're just going to keep showing this. We're going to keep showing up at the polls. But you guys also have to make your voices heard to these candidates because they need to know that you care about these issues and that they can't flounder on them. When are we, when are we going to see the report, Terry? I want to give people a heads up because this is, this is absolutely a fundamental building block going forward. How, when is this report going to come out? So we're waiting on the research from our campaign ads. Steve, as you know, we ran millions of dollars worth of ads this year. Yeah. We're doing the research. We, we hope to have it done uh, around the first part of the year. But I, I promise you, we will launch this on War Room. I love that. So, uh, where's your social media, your website now, all of it? Uh, where do they get to you, sir? It's just uh, Shilling1776 across all the platforms, Truth, uh, Getter, uh, and Twitter and Instagram, killing seventeen seventy six, and then AmericanPrinciplesProject.org to uh, catch us on the web. Okay, uh, brother, we're going to look forward to seeing that report and breaking it down and going through it and making sure everybody reads it so and everybody understands it. I, I couldn't agree more with the two thousand twelve autopsy was also where, and I love Reince Priebus, but they also came out and said, "Hey, we need amnesty, we need open borders, basically." And I said, no, 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 that's just a complete, complete mystery. The Trump movement really came out of that botched autopsy. And for David French, <laughs> President Trump delivered more for the right to life movement than any president in history. Am I am I correct in that, uh, Terry Schilling? You no, know, that, that, that was what was so maddening about that whole segment is they're acting like, oh, well, Trump's a fake pro-lifer. Well, yeah, well, that fake yeah. pro-lifer just beat the crap out of all of the guys that have been pro-life in their heart of hearts for, for decades because he overturned Roe Amen. in his first term, and he didn't even really try that hard. It seemed like he just did it. <laughs> uh, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on here to go through the report. Thanks, I want to bring in now, uh, this is very important, and we've got him by phone. We've interrupted his workday, uh, and uh, we, we apologize to him for that, but we're going to have him back on more to go through this. This is Mark Sonnenklar. He uh, wrote an incredible report that uh, Just the News, John Solomon uh, team has picked up, the, um, as we talked about previously. Um, uh, the Hannity has linked to it. Uh, many of the a Daily Caller did a huge piece on it. It's starting to get write-ups, uh, and he's going to start doing a lot more media. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us by phone. I just wanted to get some very basics out of here because I know you're pressed for time. You, you did a report, and, and the title of this report, and we have it, our team has it, and Memphis has it. We're going to have it up on screen. Uh, 
Captain Bannon and uh, and Grace Chung are going to put it in all the chat rooms. It's going to be up. Natalie's going to have it at the War Room site. We're going to push this out. Here's what I need everybody to do. I need everybody to read this report. I need everybody to reflect on this report. And I need everybody to push this report out. The title of it is, uh, it's from Mark Sinclair, and it's to a list of people, Kelly Ward, who you know uh, very well, uh, and various Republican, Gina Swoboda, who you know very well, and other uh, uh, Republican candidates. It's it, The title of it is Maricopa County Roving Attorney Observations, November 8, 2022 General Election. And it's written approximately a week after. Uh, Mark, just a couple things. And this report is is extraordinarily detailed, uh, goes on for page after page after page. I think it's, what, 23 pages. Uh, and I need everybody to read it because I need the war room posse needs the facts. Mark, first off, when you say observations, where were you? How did you actually get in a, a situation that you could actually um, write this report? What were you doing? Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, I uh, I was working for uh, the Republican National Committee's Election Integrity Program in Arizona. And uh, I, I signed up for that program because I, I knew that election, well, I, we moved to Arizona from California uh, right before the 2020 election. And I saw that what happened in Arizona uh, during the 2020 election. And I was pretty outraged and uh, I was upset that, um, you know, the powers that be didn't uh, look more into that election. And I, I decided at that time I wanted to help save Arizona. And uh, I thought that election integrity would be, you know, really sort of at the core of doing that. So I enrolled in this program, the Republican National Committee's Election Integrity Program, and um, we were trained. Uh, there were... Uh, 17 or 18 uh, total roving attorneys that went to the various vote centers in Maricopa County um, on election day. Um, I, by the way, I did do this uh, during the primary on August 2nd as well. So I had some experience. This was my second time doing it uh, on election day of the general election. And um, yeah, so um, that, that was the program I was in and, and I, I visited uh, 10 different vote centers on uh, the election day of the, of the general election. Um, I can't recall exactly how many I, I uh, visited during the primary, but I actually included my primary report um, within the general election report as well. So anybody who reads the, the general election report will also be able to review my what I saw during the primary. Um, and there were... Uh, Let me ask you, were, you went around... Let me say, I just want to say for the audience, it's very detailed. It's 23 pages long. I want the audience to read it and come to their own conclusions, uh, but it's very detailed. And you kind of check the time when you went around and you give a, a personal observation. Ha has, has this been more formalized? And you're part of the election integrity, I guess, team that's working on this. Has this been more formalized in the RNC or is somebody uh, thinking of doing something with this? Where does this stand right now? Honestly, I don't know. The RNC really hasn't been in touch with me. I sort of took it upon myself to write this report on my own. I, I surveyed, I went out to the other roving attorneys, as I mentioned, there were 17 or 18 in Maricopa County. Yeah. Um, and we covered, I, I believe we covered all 223 vote centers in Maricopa County on election day. I went out and, you know, proactively um, sought out the findings from the other roving attorneys. And I had, uh, I believe, 10 of them got back to me and gave me their detailed findings. So, you know, together, me and the other 10 roving attorneys that did respond to my survey, my informal survey, um, we, we together covered 115 a total vote centers out of a total of 223, so a little over 50% uh, of the vote centers we covered. And so, no, but to answer your question, um, I, I don't know what the RNC is doing. Um, they have not contacted me. I did this on my own, and, uh, and, I, and I, I got it out, out there on my own. 
Uh, Mark, when the audience starts to read this 23-page report, what would, as kind of their Sherpa, what would you recommend they focus on? What are the one or two things that they should really focus on as, as they go through this? Well, like I said, we um, well, in the report, if you, if you focus on the executive summary, the first uh, one to two pages, you'll see that um, we reported that me and the 10 other roving attorneys reported that 72 of the total 115 vote centers that we uh, visited, which is 60, you know, a little over 62%, had material problems with the, the printers, which caused the tabulators to not be able to read the voters' ballots. Um, uh, you know, I also saw, you know, I witnessed with my own uh, two eyes several of the vote centers where the tabulators were rejecting nearly 100% of the ballots uh, on, uh, you know, upon the initial insert of the ballot. Now, you might be able to flip it over and get it to read the second time or the third time or the fourth time, but um, there, were, there were vote centers where 100% of the time it would not read the first time. Um, and, and then on average, I estimate after you know, gathering all of this data from the various roving attorneys that on average, I was seeing a failure rate. Of, the tabulators were not able to read the ballots 25 to 40% of the time at all. So no matter how many times the voter put the ballot into the tabulator, it, the tabulator would not read that ballot between 25 and 40% of the time. The other thing um, uh, that I saw was, you know, as a result of these tabulator issues and potentially other issues as well, there were very long lines at the, uh, at the vote centers. So um, 59 of the 115 vote centers that, you know, I and the 10 other um, roving attorneys visited and observed at had very long lines one to two hour lines, it, it was it was crazy. And so based on those lines, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the voters, you know, there had to have been a lot of voters who would not, you know, this was a Tuesday, people were had to go to work uh, or had to be back at work. I think it's quite safe to say that there were many, many voters who did not wait in those lines, left the vote center. I mean, you know, it's, it, it takes a special person who, who's going to wait in a two-hour line um, to, to vote. Um, and and, and per, you know, I would imagine many of those people didn't, didn't vote later either. So I just think that, you know, with a 62% failure rate in, in, in terms of the number of, of locations that had uh, printer and tabulator problems, uh, you've got massive voter suppression in, in Maricopa County. And, and you add to that that, you know, a, a significantly larger portion of the voting public that went to the polls, who went to the vote centers on election day were Republican voters. Um, they significantly outnumbered Democrat voters in Maricopa County on election day. So, you know, any problems at the vote centers on election day are just logically uh, going to impact Republican candidates and, and their ability to get votes much more than they would Democrat candidates. Since 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 you're an observer and went around, uh, here's what I think is is confusing the people, even in Arizona that weren't in the room. And, and then, of course, the rest of the nation in the world, because everybody's watching this, the knowing <laughs> knowing that they were going to be under a microscope, given the two years of really the direction of the nation, right in the direction of the world. From, from the Ukraine to the southern border of the United States, the capital markets to the economy, all of it. This whole situation with tabulators and things being set and machines and ink and all this, which gets kind of confusing to people. When you were in there and you're saying there's a 25 to 40 percent uh, failure rate and you're saying in some places you observed there was 100 percent rejection over and over again. Were, were the people that actually were part of the official process that they were they shocked by this? Was there any panic? I mean, because one of the things that came out is that there was and this is came up in the in the court hearing that took place that that afternoon to try to extend hours. Was there any um, was there any I don't want to say panic, but it looked like people actually knew to you know box number three or, or or you can leave and go to another place, which seems like did not take did not go in accordance to the manual that's been promulgated. What were your observations about the actual people that were actually running the election? Well, 
first of all, I want to say that the Maricopa County should have absolutely known that there were, you know, that, that they had these technology issues. Because as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I had written a report um, which, uh, during my primary experience on primary day, that noted and concluded, frankly, that there were major technology problems with printers and tabulators on primary day in, on August 2nd of this year. So the fact that, Mar and, and granted that report did, didn't go to Maricopa County election officials, it went to the RNC and I don't really know what happened with it after that. But nevertheless, you know, they must have, the county must have received reports from its, you know, inspectors in the field and tech people in the field and troubleshooters in the field that there were problems with, with the tabulators reading the printed ballots. They had to know this during the primary. So that's the first thing I want to say. I just, it's at best complete malfeasance that they did not resolve the problems that they must have seen during the primary. And then, you know, more directly to answer your question that you just asked me, um, there were, it was a mixed bag in the field on, gen, on the general election day. Um, you know, some inspectors, you know, probably had been, had been inspectors before and knew what they were doing and knew that um, they could, you know, send people to other vote centers. But having said that, None of the inspectors were trained, and I don't believe any of the inspectors knew that they had to check people out of their vote center before they sent them to another vote center. So I know I've, hey, I've heard many. Mark, yeah, Mark, Mark, just hang on for one second. I want to get to, we're going to take a short commercial break. We return Mark Sonnenklar, who was an observer uh, and wrote this really incredible report that we want everybody to re-report. Short commercial break. We'll be back. we got Joe Allen. TikTok, Dave Walsh on uh, Energy next. You know what's never good? When your nation's supposed authority on economic policy completely misses the flashing red lights of impending inflation. Now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has finally admitted, quote, there's been an unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time, fully understand, end quote. You know who understands the real threat of inflation? People who invested in gold and silver with Birch Gold Group. They're protecting their savings from a highly turbulent economy by diversifying their 401k or IRA into gold, physical gold. It's not too late for you to take action now. Text Bannon, B-A-N-N-O-N, to 989898 and get a free info kit on diversifying and protecting your savings with precious metals. With an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers, text Bannon, B-A-N-N-O-N, to 989898. And get the real help from Birch Gold today. Again, text Bannon to 989898 to claim your free, no-obligation information kit on protecting your savings with gold. War Room Battleground with Stephen K. Bannon. Uh, welcome back. Mark Sinclair, I want to just finish the thought you had right before the break. You're, you're saying that um, so, some some uh, people look like they were knew what they were doing. Others didn't. But the, the critical comment you made was or the most important comment, the buried lead, as we call it. They didn't know about the uh, the voided ballots or, or, or checking in, checking out. I think that's one of the big confusions. And I think the supervisor. Um, you know, Bill Gates came out and gave, a, I think, a very confusing uh, set of uh, instructions during the day. And later that night or later that afternoon, it's actually in the the court uh, arguments with Tom Liddy, the 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 uh, the attorney for Maricopa County. There seemed to be generally confusion of the people there putting on the process about what people are doing, about checking in, checking out what they're supposed to do with ballots, et cetera. Can you just put a little more flesh in that bone of what you what you saw? Yeah, well, since Election Day, I've spoken with um, 
a couple of different inspectors and they tell me that they were not trained on checking, that they had to check people out of their vote center. So an inspector is the lead um, person at a vote center. And, and based on what these inspectors told me, they were not trained in how to, that they needed to check people out. Once people checked into a vote center, that um, if they wanted to go to another vote center because the vote center that they were at was, you know, the tabulators were not reading their ballots and they didn't want to put it in box three, um, then they would be, they could go to another vote center and try there, but they had to check out of the original vote center that they were at before they would be, uh, could go to the next vote center and vote. Um, at the next vote center, the, vo uh, the second vote center that you went to would would see that you had checked in at another uh, at the first vote center and would force you to vote provisionally, which you know provisionals are are reviewed um, apparently by election officials as well. But it's less likely that your provisional ballot is going to get counted. So yes, there was a problem there in that they were not trained uh, in how to check people out before they sent them to another vote center. And, you know, my understanding is that uh, Maricopa County election officials did not uh, inform inspectors or did not get the word out to their inspectors, to the various, uh, the inspectors at the various vote centers, that they needed to check people out. That's my understanding. I, I haven't confirmed that. Mark, last question. Uh, the power of this report, and once again, I, I want everybody in the chat rooms to, to, to look at this and to reflect upon it as you read it. Uh, the power of this is that it's observations. You don't really editorialize in this. And I'm not asking you to editorialize now, but as someone that was there for the, for the day and, and had done the primary, what is your general conclusion of the election process as you saw it on the 8th of November in the year of our Lord, 2022? in Arizona, sir? Well, as I said, the least, you, you know, the least that could be said for this performance by the Maricopa County election officials is that it was complete incompetence. Um, and, you know, I don't have proof of intentionality that, you know, they intentionally did this, but the way that uh, the Maricopa County elections officials are reacting, you know, uh, since election day and up until today is suspicious. Um, they are trying to tamp down any questions about this election in Maricopa County. They are maintaining, they have maintained that only 70 um, vote centers were impacted by the tabulator issue, which was really actually a, a printer issue, and um, which, you know, we, we, we roving attorneys surveyed 115 vote centers out of 223, and we found that 72 of just that subset of the total number of vote centers had problems. So I don't buy that only 70 of the 223 vote centers had issues with the, the printer slash tabulators. Um, I don't buy that the problems were resolved as of three o'clock, which is what's uh, something that uh, uh, Supervisor Bill Gates said on election day. That is absolutely false because I was at vote centers after 3 p.m. and they still had problems with the tabulators. And, um, you know, to minimize things in, the, in that way, um, the, the, the uh, County Board of Supervisors is, is really minimizing the problems on election day. That leads me to believe that there is, they are hiding something. Um, so that's all I can say. I, I don't want to speculate on their, you know, what yeah. their intentions were. No, that's fine. But, but yeah. uh, I can. No, that's, I think it's fine. How, are, you, are you on social media at all? Can people follow you? Or if not, that's fine. But are, are you, because mm -hmm. this report is fairly explosive. Uh, and I know a lot of important people are writing this up now. You got John Solomon's team, Sean Hannity's team. The old Tucker Carlson team over at Daily Caller. Uh, I know other people are kind of all over this work going through it. Is are you on social media? You know, I dropped off of social media several years ago because I didn't trust it anymore. Um, so not really. I, I do have a website. If you'd like me to give that, I can do that. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. What's the website? Uh, the website is ethos. That's e t h o s lawgroup.com. 
ethoslawgroup.com, all one word. Yeah. Mark, Asan, yeah. and Clark, thank you very much for joining us here in the war. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, I want to uh, I, thank, thank you, brother. I, I want to make sure everybody gets this report and reads it. We're going to have a lot more discussion about this in the days and the weeks ahead. Uh, this is, um, it's an eyewitness account from a fairly sophisticated guy about this, a lawyer. Uh, I want to go to Dave Walsh. I got Joe Allen on the TikTok. I got Dave Walsh. Dave, uh, thank you, uh, by the way, for changing your schedule to be here. And I wanted people to do it because we've talked about this thing of reparations. But all the great media here in the United States, th this reparations, uh, uh, what has happened in COP27, and I think it's great about my next two guests because Joe Allen's been doing such a good job about what's been going on at the G20 and what's going on at the B20. You have these really supranational groups that the United States, without really uh, promulgating this to the people in this country, are making huge commitments. They're going to have massive implications to this nation going forward, particularly financially and, uh, and economically. Uh, take a couple of minutes. The, the Indian paper is covering this reparation situation. You thought this number four to seven trillion dollars. We've got the the article. I think it's from the Hindu Times. Can you just walk us through how they derive the number? When we talk about reparations and wealth transfer and all that, what we're actually talking about, uh, Dave Walsh? Well, you're right. This is not reported over here in our media at all. Indian media did a pretty thorough job in the Times of reporting out on this. Two numbers. One was looked like reparations, possibly 400 to 500 billion per annum, but then on the other hand, to induce um, spending on environmental related uh, implementation of four to six trillion a year being required. So it's not completely clear how this is going to come down, but they did disclose this was a whole 40 hour negotiation after Friday when the meeting was supposed to end into Sunday morning where this is all being hashed out for three key issues. Who will manage the fund? Uh, what large developing countries will contribute? That means China, India. Will they be asked to contribute at all? And what will the fair share contribution be? So those principles were laid out to be agreed in the next COP meeting in detail a year from now, the, the exact details as, as reported. So this is, this is going to land between half, 500 billion a year and a six trillion per year, somewhere. Tell us, tell us, you've got the this fund or whatever this reparations thing is is going to have developed nations who they accuse of in their development, um, doing all this bad stuff, con contributing or driving climate change, and then you have developing nations where it's going to be the recipient. And the question are the two biggest. This is why the the Times of uh, the Hindu Times is doing such a thorough work on it. India wants to find out whether they're going to be on the writing a check or cashing a check, right. um, which is a very big deal for a country that's got the poverty of India. But the four to five hundred billion, they, they've kind of made that looks like the annually is the reparations part. But the four to yeah. six trillion sounds like reparations too on a continual basis. What what is the four to six trillion? What's the makeup of it, and what's supposed to be its purpose? Well, to the extent that that's not reparations, that would be mandated spending and or facilitated loan support, equity support, equity inputs by by the developed governments supporting lending, World Bank lending, uh, JBIG financing in the case of Japan into these markets, needing uh, more renewables in their new energy mix as they grow and develop. So that's where we go to countries in sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia, Philippines, Indonesia, in desperate need of more baseload generation being condemned by these measures to only adopt renewable technologies that are intermittent, part-time, have very low energy density on a going forward basis that only those kinds of programs would be funded. That It's more than inferred. That's where we are now already with the World Bank. The World Bank only funds projects in these nations. Uh, as as they relate to energy, if they are renewable, that's the limit of their funding presently already. So this is it creates a larger disaster in in attempting to develop those nations into a more modern lifestyle of economic development. Talk to people about that because you're saying that most of these nations are really where we were at the beginning of the 20th century, and they don't have any yeah. possibility or capability of getting to the mid-century or even latter half of the 20th century given 
the constraints put yeah. on them for for a baseload energy coming from solar, coming from wind, coming from tidal, coming from things that just can't provide it no matter because you have to go against the laws laws of physics, right? Well, the, the the average country in sub-Saharan Africa has a GDP per capita of about twelve to thirteen hundred dollars per person. Um, the average electricity use replicates what the United States was between 1905 and 1920 in the typical country in sub-Saharan Africa, highlighting the desperate need for large-scale baseload power-producing, electricity-producing energy plants, power plants, that have been the hallmark of developing Western Europe, North America, Japan, Russia, into a, and China particularly, into a modern-day modern, modern day existence. So uh, part-time renewables, condemning them to nothing but part-time renewables, will, will not get them economic development, period. Electricity consumption is at the core of economic development. Lots, lots of uh, studies have been made to correlate the two very tightly. But I, there's a little more I just on want this. To make, if the, yeah, go ahead. Like, go ahead. There are a bunch of countries that should never participate in receiving reparations. Let me go to the in the top 20 coal exporting countries in the world: Vietnam, Mozambique, Ukraine, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Poland, South Korea, India, Indonesia, South Africa are members of the top 20 coal exporting nations in the world. So to the extent they're exporting this hideous fuel, they should be exempted from any receipts. Nigeria, Libya, Algeria, Ecuador have been, Indonesia has been, but Equatorial Guinea and Gabon continue to be members of uh, uh, OPEC as major oil exporters. And then not to mention Angola, Iran, Oman, Russia, the Congo, Malaysia, Colombia, and Iraq. Colombia is a major coal exporter also. And Iraq, a member of export uh, OPEC, should not be involved in receiving any funding related to the damage done by carbon fuels when they're among the largest exporters in the world of oil and gas. So you can start to eliminate. But but yeah, you you know well that's not where this is going to go. They'll all be they'll all be happy recipients of this should it go forward. It just it's, it's it, on so many levels it's just so wrong. Well, last question. We've got about a minute. What when do you expect have you heard, because you followed this closely, of Kerry or the Biden Regime has anybody come back and actually outside of war room, and a couple of left wing sites has anybody have they really come back and addressed to the American people to Congress the people's representatives or anywhere no. exactly what they've signed us up for? No, there there has been no preliminary discussion whatsoever except a couple of utterances of Kerry to the media, bragging about promoting this ideation about three weeks ago. Um, if it comes to Congress, you you can bet it's going to be in the middle of the night. It's going to be attached to a bill at midnight. And we're, there's going to be very little review of it. Um, th this is, but I do think this is why this thing delayed a year because most of these countries do recognize they still have some notion of sovereignty, having either a parliament, a congress, a Bundestag that has to approve their spending. Therefore, yeah, we can come and have these happy talk meetings, but we have do have to go back to our people to attempt to get funding for these kinds of right. these kinds of programs. Um, Particular scale of it. No, not, nothing in public, nothing has been stated. We, yeah, we, we have to rely on the Hindu Times to get information about what our what our leaders are committing us to. Unbelievable. Uh, Dave, how do people get to you on social media to find out more of your analysis? I can be reached at, at Dave Walsh Energy on Getter. Steve, thank you. Thank you. Amazing job. Okay. Uh, Joe Allen, uh, The you did the, uh, you did the webinar this afternoon on TikTok. Here's what I don't get. I want you to explain it. It's it's a data gathering opera. And people have warned about this. And of course, also Dave Urban, you know, Dave Urban was on CNN beating up on, on President Trump. He used to be an advisor to him, was on the board of ByteDance, which was a our senior advisor to ByteDance, which is the parent company of this and totally controlled by the CCP. This is, uh, well, we'll walk us through. How is it controlled by the CCP? How are they sucking up the data of young people? And correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the Democratic Party just use TikTok as their major platform for getting the word out to all their young, naive uh, voters, sir? Yes, Steve, that's correct. And uh, also a lot of people that are directly associated with uh, the Democratic Party now and in, in previous administrations like Obama, uh, Natalie Winters has done a lot to point that out, that uh the ByteDance TikTok uh, 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 revolving door really does involve, by and large, uh, Democratic operatives, not so much Republicans. 
so the surveillance is is pretty straightforward. Uh, I wish I could say that it was unique to Chinese apps, but it really isn't. American, European, uh, you know, any any tech app is always trying to suck up your data. But the danger with the uh, Chinese Communist Party getting a hold of that data, especially on mass through TikTok, is that it gives them an insight into the American psyche and American interests and American social trends that our tech companies really don't have, uh, you know, going the other way. It's kind of a one-way mirror. China, of course, has banned Facebook, has banned YouTube, uh, has banned Instagram and various other U.S. Uh, technology platforms, whereas we allow them basically an open window into our national psyche and maybe most dangerously into the psyches of children. So, uh, you know, one element I really want to highlight, uh, aside from the sort of psychological information uh, and sociological information, uh, is that TikTok uh, actually tries to get from as many users as possible their face print or their voice print, the sorts of uh, biometric data that people use to open, for instance, their Apple devices. And they're obviously doing so in order to gather intelligence and gain whatever advantage and, and be able to uh, exert whatever influence they can over American culture. And, you know, I really encourage the audience to check out the, if they didn't already check it out, to check out the webinar. The video should be up by tomorrow at around noon. And the contributions of Colonel John Mills and Connie Elliott uh, were really spectacular. Uh, I think Connie Elliott especially shined when she was talking about the sorts of neurological models that the people who develop these apps are relying on, the, the, the mesolimbic or reward pathways, the dopamine pathways that get people, especially children, hooked on these apps. And she really went in depth on that. It was really incredible. Does this, um, not just the ability to, to take our data, they have all types of possibilities of actually influencing and doing uh, mass influence operations by the types of content they put and make available. Am I am I wrong in that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's 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 been long known that uh, there there are two different TikToks. There's the American TikTok, and then there's Douyin, and that's the 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 kind of sister version of the app that's allowed in China. And so the the sister version in China, Douyin. Uh, it limits the amount of time that children can spend on it. They can't use it at night, for instance. Uh, and it also curates the content to be much more edifying. There's a lot more informational, educational content on it. Whereas the American apps are filled with all the sorts of things you would see on libs of TikTok timelines, right? I mean, just lots of, you know, just to say it nakedly, lots of degenerate material uh, that, you know, it's impossible to know exactly how much they put their thumbs on the scales because the algorithm is completely opaque. Uh, but it's clear that the output, yeah. the content of TikTok in America is much more geared towards tearing down moral structures and, and it really pushing out a lot of unhealthy sorts of content. Wow. Joe, how do they get to you? How do they get to the webinar? They can see it uh, up on, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's even up maybe tomorrow, but how do they get to the webinar and how do people get to your writings? Uh, I'll have it posted up on my social media at J-O-E-B-O-T-X-Y-Z. I'll also send it over so that it'll be uh, in the War Room news section tomorrow as soon as it posts. Should be around noon. Uh, also, you can you can find me at uh, JoeBot.XYZ. Thank you very much, Steve. Very disturbing. Joe Allen, thank you very much. Okay, we're going to be back here at 10 o'clock. A lot of things are heating up. The battle for uh, who's going to lead uh, the House is on fire. Uh, what's going to happen in Arizona is on fire. What's going to happen in this lame duck, the most historical lame duck uh, probably in uh, modern history. That starts on Monday. All these fights are continuing. We'll see you back here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. With that and much, much more, big news out of Brazil. We'll get into depth tomorrow. See you at 10 o'clock.
War Room Posse, you already know free speech is under constant attack by the swamp and their big tech allies. They resell your communications and personal data while lecturing and laughing at you. I've got the solution. Unplugged Systems, a secure communications company, has an app suite you can install on any Android phone, including its own uncancelable app store, VPN, antivirus, and highly encrypted messenger better than Wicker, Signal, Telegram, or anything else. None of your message or VPN traffic is stored, analyzed, or sold. Claim your security for only $10 a month. Go to their website, unplugged.com. That's unplugged.com slash warroom to install the Unplugged Suite. It's secure. It's private. It's the way we stay connected and informed. Get it now. Take action, action, action. Use your agency. They put Peter Navarro in leg irons for simply doing his constitutional duty. Now they want to put Peter in prison for standing up for Donald Trump. Please go to Amazon right now and order Taking Back Trump's America to help fund Peter's legal defense. Taking Back Trump's America provides a critical MAGA blueprint to put Trump back in the White House in 2024. Buy Taking Back Trump's America on Amazon today. If they can put Peter Navarro in prison, they can come for all of us. Folks, let me tell you about Salty. It's a company that makes a soft gel supplement rich in antioxidants to help people like you and me keep a healthy heart. While COVID gets all the headlines, it's important to realize that heart disease kills nearly 700,000 Americans every year. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer every year, year in and year out. Heart disease builds over time. Hypertension, high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, all of it affects our heart. A healthy heart is key to being energetic as we get older. It is never too early to take care of your heart. You see, heart disease sneaks up on us. You can start in your 30s, and when this happens, you're at serious risk by the time you turn 60. If you want to take care of your heart and those you care about, please go to warroomhealth.com. That's warroomhealth.com. All one word, warroomhealth.com. Use the code warroom at checkout to save 67% of your first shipment. That's code WARROOM at checkout to save 67%. And do it again. WARROOMHEALTH, all one word, WARROOMHEALTH.COM. Go there today. You need, if you're going to be part of the posse, you need a strong heart. You need a lion's heart. How we're going to do that is with Salty. Go there. Do it today. Check it out. 